Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number 22. Today we're going to be talking about something called real estate investing, uh, which is one of the areas that you may very well find yourself involved with. Uh, you know, all along we've been talking about or discussing real estate as if, you know, it's something like just residential homes or land. But you, as you may very well find out once you get in the business or even get interested and get around the business, real estate involves a lot of other types of properties. And here in Sacramento, we have a lot of different companies that specialize in other areas besides residential property. You may find, in some cases, you may have some real estate agents or brokers that are working in a real, regular real estate office like a Lion Realtors or a Colwell Banker or Remax that may very well decide that what they want to do is specialize in the acquisition or the purchase and the sale of investment properties. And when we talk about investment properties, they can be anything from as small as a single family home. You know, usually when we're an investor and we start out our investing career, if you will, we usually end up, uh, the first property we have might, that we get as an investment might be a single family home that's a rental property or it could be a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, or we could be where the first property we have that we're going to you know, rent out to somebody could be like a condominium or a townhouse. Uh, so that's usually where we all sort of start. And then as we learn a little bit more, get a little bit knowledge, a little bit more experience as an investor, what we may do is start to climb up the, climb up the ladder, if you will. And we may decide to go from a single family home or a duplex or fourplex to say a small apartment house. Uh, or an apartment building. So we may find ourselves going up in the area of residential. And so if you want to say investment property, one of the areas we can talk about is just residential. Would be everything from a single family home to huge apartment complexes. Other kinds of investment property that you may be involved with are things such as office buildings is another one. You may find out that, again, people sometimes start their investment career and that area is an investor because they have a need for it. Uh, as an example, there are, I happen to have a dentist who I don't know how many years ago uh, decided that he needed to have an office. He had been renting an office for a long period of time and said, you know what, I, you know, I plan on, you know, once I get an office and I get it all, all the equipment in there, I kind of want to hold on to it. I'm getting tired of dealing with a landlord. And so what he did is he decided to buy a building or an office building. So he, his first venture into the, the land of real estate investment was for a need to fit his particular niche, which was as a dentist in an office that he could have his patients come into. So you'll find people like doctors, dentists, accountants, lawyers. My accountant, for example, his, his office is a, in Woodland is, is uh, you know, the building that he's located in. He happens to own that. So you could find out, and that'll go again from very, something very small. It could be like a home that was converted from a single-family home into an office building. Those types of homes that you'll see, our uh, properties you'll see along El Camino Avenue here in Sacramento, where at one time they were a house, and somebody decided to turn them into a um, into an office, uh, doctor's office, dental office, or whatever. Another kind of area that you may find people specializing in would be something such as industrial property. An industrial property happens to be where people are going to be working or manufacturing or making things that they're going to be selling to somebody and, and uh, to other businesses. So in the Sacramento area, we have a lot of areas where there are industrial areas, 
where they'll do things like manufacture cabinetry, they'll manufacture uh, you know, wheels for cars, they'll do all kinds of things like that. So you could find out that you may be specializing in that area. Or another area might be in something such as warehousing. You know, a lot of times people that are in businesses and individuals may find out that they need, you know, the area where they currently live or their office area doesn't have enough room to put all the things that they need. So they need to put, have some place where they can store stuff. So that can start off as a single family homeowner that maybe just has, uh, you know, the garage is full and, uh, and they want to put stuff in a mini warehouse and maybe you're the type that's going to be involved in investing in building in mini warehouses where people can store stuff. Or you can have where uh, a lot of times, especially like not here in Sacramento, but in the Reno area, there are a lot of places up there where people, large companies are storing their inventory for their businesses because they're, say, in the retail business and they don't have enough room to put all of their inventory, so they have to put it in some kind of a warehouse. So hopefully you get the idea that investing in real estate is different than residential property. It's a specialization, if you will. It takes a different kind of person that's going to do that. It's a different kind of a mode. Uh, most of the people that are involved in investment types of property are more interested in the numbers. In other words, how much money they're going to earn either through cash flow, money coming into them, or through appreciation in the property. So you're going to find out you'll be dealing more with financial statements. You're going to be looking at how much money the property actually makes. You're going to be looking at what other kinds of uses it can maybe be put to, can it be converted, used to have another use, those kinds of things. So probably the first thing that you're going to, once you decide that you want to do this thing called real estate investment, uh, you know, working with investors, you're going to find out that what you're going to have to be doing is, you know, you'll have to find some way of meeting these people. Typically what may happen is you might be working for a brokerage company in which uh, one of the agents, just like you would in, uh, for example, in, uh, uh, in single-family homes where one of the agents in the, in the office happens to have an apartment house that they're selling or an office building. And you may very well say to them, do you mind if I assist you in some way or another in helping you market that? And you maybe will, for example, run ads in the paper trying to attract people that are interested in buying that kind of property. And by doing that, it's the same sort of an analogy when you're trying to get st started to selling residential property. In other words, usually a lot of times we'll try to maybe work with somebody, maybe list a house or put some, an ad in the paper or hold an open house. And, uh, you know, to, to find uh, people that want to buy. And we're doing the same thing in investment property. We're trying to find who are those people out there that are interested in buying, acquiring, owning, and selling investment-type properties. So anyway, the first thing you'll do is you'll find some way of meeting these people. Again, running an ad in the paper, helping somebody else by running that ad might be a way to meet these people. Finally, when you do talk to them, you're going to find out you're going to be asking them more questions than you normally would underneath uh, a circumstance such as uh, buying or selling a house. There's going to be more questions you're going to want to find out information about so that you're, enable, you're able to help them. So the book starts out by talking about, and I'm going to kind of read some of these definitions to start with so that we're all kind of on track. It says, uh, this chapter deals with real estate investments from both the investors and the real estate practitioners' perspective. So when you read this, keep in mind that who are we talking about? Are we talking about the investor or are we talking about you as the real estate agent that's trying to help the investor acquire or to buy or sell properties? 
It includes an, a variety of investment factors that should be considered, the benefits and rewards of investing, and the risks associated with investing in or financing income properties, and your role as a licensee you play in this process. Okay. And then down below, I think it has uh, a statement here that's pretty, pretty clear. It says, people invest in property for a variety of reasons. In general, these can be reduced down to three. Number one, to meet their personal goals and objectives, and that might be things like financial goals and objectives. Second, to give them a means to meet their other financial commitments. Other financial commitments might be something like they want to invest in real estate to help them so they have some money set aside when they get ready to retire would be one. And the third, to obtain economic soundness of real property. In other words, they want to make money. That's the difference between that and residential property. An investment property, you start talking about things such as does the property pencil out? Pencil out means that I'm going to sit down and the property may look pretty, may really look nice, but what I'm going to do is sit down with a pencil and I'm going to take all the financial figures and I'm going to try to figure out does this property, based on what I'm going to acquire for, or what people are selling it for, can I make money on it? And I can make money on property in a lot of different ways, but I am going to actually figure this out. And if that property does not pencil out, that's a term we use, does not pencil out, the figures don't come out, they don't make any sense, we are going to walk away from that property. We're going to hopefully make this an, a very objective type of purchase if we're an investor. And you also as an agent need to also realize that investors are looking at this as an objective type of decision. Not that it has pretty rooms or nice drapes or a nice roof. Can they make money on it? Very, very important. So the first thing when you meet with investors is that investors, you have to look at what the investor is trying to do. It says investors may be seeking additional income through well-chosen properties or a tax shelter to help them reduce their tax bite or otherwise taxable income. I have a little bit of a problem with buying property. I have a little bit of a problem, to be honest with you, buying anything or investing in anything with the whole sole purpose of being to save money on income taxes. I, I, Pat Hogarty, personally don't necessarily agree with that concept. I think that a property should be bought on the fact of, econo of its economics and can I make money on the property. And if I happen to be able to have some form of tax benefits related to that, that's fine, but I want to know can I make money on it. Other considerations may be prestige, personal enjoyment in the properties or activities, and the creation of, and, and then it goes on from there, an estate, let me just show you where this is, an estate, an estate. The investor, uh, the investor needs to decide which of these or which combination is important in order to select the most likely to accomplish these objectives. So the first thing you want to do is when you're sitting there with an investor that's looking to buy properties, you want to figure out why are they deciding to buy real estate. We have a lot of financial alternatives that are available to us if we want to invest. And uh, for example, if we're getting ready and we have money that we want to put aside with the idea in mind, remember when we invest we want to take our money, we want to put it someplace, we want somebody hopefully that's going to pay us some kind of a return such as interest or income from the use of that money or something like that. We want to earn some money. We want to put in $1,000 and have it worth $10,000 a number of years later. That's the concept that we have. 
So what we need to do is figure out what objectives the, uh, the investor is trying to accomplish. Are they trying to, for example, buy the property for long-term gain? Are they the type of investor that really wants to make a lot of money, but what they're willing to do is maybe turn the property around? They're willing to, um, you know, they're, they're looking for something they can buy and make some kind of change in management or structure or physical use of it and, and improve the value of the property. What are they trying to accomplish? The second thing that we have to look at when we're dealing with these people is their capacity. So what we're saying is, as an investor in real estate should have the financial ability to handle the carrying costs of an investment, such as debt service, loan payments, taxes, and still retain cash reserves for emergencies. That means that when we're sitting down with the investor, one of the things that's going to be important is that we're going to look at the financial statements that are provided by the people that are selling the property, such as, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a single-family home and you're renting it out, it's fairly straightforward. You kind of take a look at the marketplace. You say, you know what, the houses in the area are, are renting out for about $1,000 a month or $1,500 a month. Very easily you can figure out what the costs are going to be associated for principal interest, taxes, and insurance you're going to have to pay and figure out whether you're going to be making or losing money. But if you're dealing with an investment piece of property, you may, for example, an apartment house, you may have 15, 16, 18, 20 units, 100 units, uh, 300 units. They're going to have not one little statement. They're going to have a financial statement that's going to show how much revenue each, <clears throat> each unit generates, uh, whether the units are rented furnished or unfurnished, whether there's additional charges for those, uh, for the furniture. You're going to look at, is there any additional profit centers that the apartment complex may have, such as you may find out that there's income coming in via something like vending machines. That's why in a lot of apartment complexes you'll see where they'll have an area where people can go and buy everything from potato chips to, to Cokes and uh, you know ice cream or whatever it happens to be. They'll have a vending area and they're actually generating income from there. In fact, the hotels are the same way. They generate income from those areas of machines. You're also going to find things like laundromats that might be on site in which the, uh, the apartment um, uh, is looking to that area as generating, not just providing that service to the people that live there, but providing income to the apartment complex. And you want to know, as, as a purchaser of the property, are, are we making or losing money on that? In other words, are we maybe charging the tenants for them to do their laundry there, but are we finding out that we're actually losing money on, on, on doing that? You know, so you need to know all of those things about the property. You have to really look at the financial statements uh, you want to make sure that, uh, take a look at um, the deposits that people have paid or put in there. Where is the money that people have put as damage and cleaning deposits? Where is that in the financial statements? Uh, you want to take a look at what kinds of reserves that maybe have been put aside for things like roof replacements, uh, landscaping, all those other things that need to be done. As a lot of these buildings get older, they need a lot of maintenance. So you may find out you may be buying an apartment complex and it may have, say, 16, 18 units, and you may find out after you have it for a couple of years, you're going to find out that it needs a completely brand new roof, which is going to be a major expense. So you kind of want to look at all of those expenses and can the investor actually carry that? You don't want to sell something to them only to find out that after a year or two they have to lose, they lose it to foreclosure because they cannot carry it. The other thing in, in, to keep in mind too is apartment complexes typically in California now that have more than 16 units, I think it's 16 or more units, have to have an on-site manager. 
So in other words, you're going to have to compensate the on-site manager of that apartment, uh, who manages that apartment complex. So if you live in an area, and I think we all probably have where we see one little apartment house that has a little sign above it that says manager's office. That manager is probably, in some cases, getting their apartment for free as part of their compensation for managing that complex, and they may also be getting a salary. And you're going to see that kind of on-site management is going to take place in things like apartment houses, mini warehouses, warehouse storage space where you're going to have on-site. You also may have things like security people that go around and make sure everything is okay, that lock and unlock gates. So there's a lot of things you have to look at, a lot more than you would look at as a single-family home. So they have that capacity. And then soundness. Soundness is after deciding on the objectives and analyzing your, your financial investor's capacity to carry a given amount of debt, uh, the economic health of the property must be considered. This includes economic trends of the surrounding area, growth in trends in the community, zoning, both uh, current and planned, and, uh, and income projections. So you have to take, you're going to spend more time, serious time, looking at where is this property located physically. Is the area itself, is it dependent, very dependent upon a certain employer? We've had that happen in the Sacramento area, for example, where we've had military bases that have closed. We had Mather closed. We had McClellan closed. We had the Army Depot closed. If people were living, you know, working in that area uh, moved away and they were renting in apartments, that means that those apartments could very well have experienced a, a loss, an income, a vacancy, Okay. You may also find out, just taking it one step further, that if you have areas where certain industries are providing most of the jobs, that things like shopping centers, small little strip centers, all of a sudden, you know, that shop in there that where those people went and got their sandwiches every day now is not getting any more business. So what they're having to do is they're having to close. And usually when you're talking about retail establishments, it takes a long time to get somebody to rent it or lease it. There's a lot of work they have to do and prove it to set their business up in, and it's a long-term thing. So you may find out if, you're, if, you're, if your apartment pl uh, complex or your investment property is really in an area where most of the business is coming from one or two employers, you can have some kind of a dramatic effect on the value of that property. The other thing I would say that you would want to look at is, is what is its... Uh, is the property kind of, is it currently fixed up and for use, or is it becoming obsolete? You see a lot of times as you drive through, you know, Sacramento area, and if you just look out the window and you start taking a look at buildings that are vacant, you know, around the area, and you say, you know, you start just asking yourself, you go, you know, that business was there for a long period of time. You know, now the building is vacant. Why is it vacant? Has there been something that has caused that to happen? Has there been a traffic pattern change? Has there been more of an area, has there been more crime in the area? Uh, has that, is that store just obsolete? In other words, it just can't provide the services that normally a regular renter would be, a, you know, a regular person that would lease the building would require. You know, why is that property sitting vacant? And when you start to observe that, you're also going to start to observe that those buildings sit vacant for a long, long, long period of time. They just don't, it's not like a house. It's not like with a house, it becomes vacant. And usually, if you do any kind of hopefully halfway decent uh, property management and uh, to be a little bit proactive, 
you probably are going to find out that on a single-family house or a small rental property that you're probably not going to have much of a vacancy factor. It's probably, if you think a little bit, treat the tenants well. When the tenants get ready to move out, contact them ahead of time. Find out if there's some way you can help them out with their moving process. Find out if you can show the property while they're still in it. You know, work with them, treat them really nice, and they'll treat you well. But if you have somebody that has something like a retail establishment and they move out, you may find out that place is going to be vacant for a long time. And plus, it's start of one vacancy sometimes can have an effect on the entire center. You can find out that one, bill, one business decides to go out of business. And because of the fact that it might be right, right where it's located in the center of the retail area, that all of a sudden, for some reason, people see that as a negative, and they decide that they're not going to shop in that shopping center, or that maybe somebody else is building a brand new center that's competing with them. And then one place moves out, then the second place moves out, and the third, before you know it, the whole place is vacant. So you kind of want to keep that in mind. That's why investment property or commercial properties, we call it, can be a much more higher, riskier property and takes a lot more management intensity to keep it up. Okay? So anyway, soundness. So we talked about that. Some of the benefits that one would have of investing in real estate, <clears throat> and again, I am not one that thinks that you should be investing in anything because you are losing money on it. You know, I always, I always cringe when people will say something like, oh, by the way, if you pay your house off, you no longer have an interest deduction. And I go, what? that doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I mean? You could take that money that you're now paying and then put it in your 401k plan and get the same deduction you were for the interest. I mean, I don't understand that kind of thinking. You know, I mean, people, people just don't make any sense to me when they think about that. I, I, I see these articles in the paper like somebody will write into a financial planner and they'll say, listen, my house only has, you know, another 10 years to pay and I have enough money and I can pay it off. And, the, and, and there might be a lot of other reasons why you don't want to pay it off. <clears throat> but one of them should not be, oh, by the way, you don't get the interest deduction anymore. I go, hello, what's wrong with that? You know, you can take, and in most of the cases, most of us, especially if we're working, have some way that we ha are contributing to a retirement plan that every single dollar that we put in there, we can take off our income taxes, which is the same as putting paying the interest rate out, except for the fact that when you pay the interest out, the money is gone. The only way you have of recapturing that interest is if the value of the property goes up. If you put it in a 401k plan or a 403b plan, you put that money in, that money is yours. When you get ready to retire, that's your money. So I never understand that analogy. But the concept of tax shelter is something that people will look at. And they'll say your clients in high-income tax brackets may benefit from sheltering or conserving part of their ordinary income. Ordinary income, by the way, is income that they earn from things like wages. Okay, their salary is what we talk about with ordinary income versus capital gains, which is on the sale of an asset. Through wise uh, planning, selection, and operation of income-producing property, depreciation expenses, and this is what we're talking about, that you'd be able to write off depreciation expenses on both real and personal property, may account for a portion of the cash flow generated from the operation of the property, particular in earlier years. The level of your investor's income subject to ordinary income tax rate can be reduced by proper deductions and operating expenses and from rental income generated from the property. Then finally, it says many highly taxed investors seek ways to protect all of their income from taxation. 
They may also attempt to reduce their tax liability on regular job income from wages and salaries. Essentially, the, the long and short of this is this. When you own an investment property, you turn around and you make a certain amount of money on it. That's called rental income. Now, because you're operating it like a business, you can take certain things and write them off against the business or against the property. Things that you can write off are things like the fire insurance. When you pay the insurance on it, that's a write-off for the year. If you pay property taxes, you can write that off. If you have expenses, such as the heater breaks down and you repair it, or the roof leaks and you repair it, those can be written off. Okay? You also have the interest that you pay on the mortgage. That can be written off. Now, one of the things that can be written off in addition to all that other stuff is called depreciation. And what depreciation is, is essentially is that you're taking the value of the improvements of the building and you are allowed to, the way that you account for the gradual wearing away of those types of, of uh, the gradual wearing away of the building is by depreciating it. In other words, taking a certain expense charge every year. So as an example, just as a theory, if I had a building that was worth $400,000, $400,000, and the property that it's set on, the land, was worth 100000 that means that the amount of the building, the value of the building, is $300,000, okay? It becomes very difficult for me to sit there and say, well, I went out and took a look at the building today, and about 10% of it, of the value of the building has gone down this year. It becomes difficult. It's a very difficult accounting problem to solve. So what the Internal Revenue Services allowed us to do is to say, you know what, we are going to give you a system called depreciation. We're going to have a certain lifespan depending upon the property that you have, type of property. And we're going to say, for example, that a residential property you can write off over 27.5 years. But let's just say it was 30 years, okay, just for argument's sake. What would happen is that $300,000 property, which you would do is you divide the 30 for 30 years into the 300000 which means that you can write off as an expense every single year $10,000 off. Now, you may say, well, what do I do with that? Well, what happens is you take the income you receive from the building minus all the expenses, and you may find out initially that you're actually receiving income from it. But then when you turn around and then expense the depreciation, you may find out that, you know, like, for example, after you did the rough expenses, you may find out, hey, I'm still earning $5,000 a year on the building. But because of the fact that you have this depreciation, now you can write off, you can actually take that $5,000 that you have left because you can depreciate it by ten. You can write that off. So now the building looks like it doesn't make anything. Even so you're earning money, you're getting money, you're actually able to write that money off. Now, you may say, well, what do I do with this excess depreciation? You know, I used five of it to, you know, to zero out the income from the building. Well, you can carry that over to your ordinary income, which means now if I make, let's say, $100,000 and I have this depreciation, I can turn around and bring this depreciation in and reduce my ordinary income by $5,000. So that's what we mean by a tax deduction. Okay, that's what we mean by a tax deduction. Now, the thing is, is that some of these buildings may very well throw off, if you will, a lot of depreciation, and it can help shelter that income. The one thing, though, that you want to keep in mind is this, and that is the fact that 
the IRS is not giving you something for nothing. You know, you are eventually going to have to do some repairs on that building. What you should be doing is looking at, hey, you know, every every single year I'm writing off $10,000 a year, but eventually I'm going to have to replace the roof. I'm eventually I'm going to have to fix the sprinkler system. I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to repair it. So the fact is, is that in the in the beginning years, it can look like you're, hey, this is a great deal. You know, I'm making a lot of money. I'm making money. I'm sheltering it. I bring some of that extra stuff over to my ordinary income. I'm doing really well. And then you own the property for, let's say, maybe about 10 years, and all of a sudden the roof starts to leak. And your roofer comes out and says, you know what, Pat? Listen, you know, I've been out here every year. Every year I fix the roof. I put a patch on it. But you know what? To be honest with you, the roof needs to be replaced. And then you're going to find out that you've got some great big capital improvements you're going to have to make. So keep in mind, there is no such thing as a free lunch. You're eventually going to have to fix those things that go wrong. Anyway, so but there could be tax benefits. The second thing is appreciation. Appreciation means that you've owned the building for a specific period of time and that the value of the building is going to go up. And typically the reason why it's going to go up is because of the fact that appreciation or inflation has pushed the value of it up. As an example, you may buy a building and say maybe something you bought in 1980 and maybe you bought this apartment complex for, I don't know, $250,000. And if you've kept it up, if you've kept it up in really good condition, you may find out if you just wanted to replace that building, just replace it, just rebuild it. You may find out that just the cost of materials and the cost of labor have gone up, and now that building that was $250,000 is now worth $500,000. So appreciation means that the value is going to go up. And what pushes that up is usually a combination of supply and demand. If there's demand for that apartments that are in the apartment building, therefore people are going to bid a higher price for rent, and the rent is going to push the value of the building up. Okay, so appreciation could be a second reason why people invest in real estate. Okay, and the funny thing is, is a lot of times a lot of us have made money in real estate. By the way, just as a side note, and it's not been because we've planned it. It's just been sheer accident. I mean, I've made money in property, and it's not because I'm, I've got some beautiful crystal ball that I'm looking at that tells me, hey, buy this year because you're going to make a lot of money. It's just that, you know, you may own, like, uh, we, we, I, made, I made twice as much money on a condo that I owned in two years. I doubled the money in the condo. That condos, those condos had sat there for years and didn't, you know, it didn't really go up in value. You know, they went up a little bit, but not too much. All of a sudden, in two years, they doubled. Now, that wasn't because of my genius or I had a better crystal ball than anybody else. It just so happens that there was more of a demand. There was a lack of supply, more of a demand. What happens is, is that, and now you're starting to see that happening in the paper where they're saying, you know, hey, there's a lot of people that maybe would have bought a single-family home at one time and are deciding not to do it. They don't want that responsibility of buying a single-family home, so they're just going to look to buy condos. Plus, a lot of people are doing, th not a lot, but for example, some people are doing things like this particular condo happened to be right near Sac State. Well, a lot of people that would maybe have their kids go there and rent, in fact, there's been numerous newspaper articles about this, what the parents do is say, you know what, if I'm going to have to pay rent for Jane every month to go to school, why don't I just go buy a condo? You know, and at the end, when she graduates, you know, I know I've got a good tenant in there, you know, right now, because probably because I pay, help pay her rent. <laughs> You know, but when she gets ready to move, I can sell it, you know, and at least get some of my money back. Maybe not all of it, but some of it back. So people are doing things like buying condos for...
their kids when they go to school. There's a lot of us that are getting to be a certain age. You know, when you get to be 55, 60 years old, you know, you turn around and if you had the big house, you may say, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to mow the lawns anymore. So you may find people out of my age are saying, you know what, I need a smaller place to live in. So all that's doing is pushing the values of the condos up. Now, did I know that for sure? Did that crystal ball tell me, oh, Pat, do this, you're going to make... Well, you know, I read articles. I mean, I just, I bought it for a different reason, and I looked like I knew what I was talking about. You know, in two years, it doubled. But it has nothing to, you know, it just so happened that I lucked out. Maybe I, maybe some of that rubbed off on me when I read the newspaper. But a lot of this sometimes, value in property, some of it you can predict, but some of it is just plain sheer luck. All the numbers came together at the right time, okay? Anyway, enough of that. Appreciation potential, though, is another one. Another reason why people will buy real estate, as they talk about here, is something called a hedge against inflation. And the concept here is the fact that, you know, when you turn around, when we talk about inflation, the easiest thing that we can talk about, use as an analogy, is we look at buying something this year. You know, simp simple things might be, you know, we go down to buy some, you know, we go down to buy some uh, food in the store. You know, we go to buy some milk, simple stuff. And we go in there, and last year to buy a quart of milk cost us, you know, a dollar. And we go in to buy the same quart of milk this year, and the milk is now worth, uh, costs us a dollar ten. That's inflation. That means that last year we could buy a quart of milk for a dollar. This year it's going to take a dollar and ten cents to buy a quart of milk. So when we talk about hedge against inflation, what we're doing is where can we put our money? Where can we place it? so that hopefully as time goes by and the cost of goods go up, you know, the cost of cars, houses, food, clothing, whatever goes up, where could we park our money that hopefully will guarantee us that that money still has the same purchasing power as it did in the year that we put it in? So that means that, hey, if we put in $10,000 in 1980 and we were trying to hedge against inflation, that we had put it in an investment that maybe 1980 was worth 10000 and that by 1990 it was now worth 15000 okay? But that 15000 still only purchased the same goods as I could in 1980, but it was a hedge against inflation, okay? Um, the other reason why people will buy is something called income, cash flow. And the concept here is that you're going to put your money down, and you're going to put enough money down <laughs> so that every month you will receive checks or a check from people that are renting or leasing from you. Okay, so it's going to provide a stream of income. So as an example here, they talk about income. They say cash flow is either positive or negative. Positive means that the money that you get enough money from your income-producing asset, from your investment, that when you get it, you can pay all of your bills, all of your costs, and have enough money left over that you can now go out and use the excess money to buy a motorcycle, plane, car, whatever you want to do. In other words, it has a positive cash flow. Negative cash flow means that what's happening is, is that every month you are not earning enough money to satisfy all of the expenses. So every month that you own that, maybe you're renting it out for $1,000 a month, but the payments on it to operate it are maybe $1,200 a month. So you're running a $200 a month negative cash flow. Now maybe you're earning enough money to pay the mortgage, but you all of a sudden find out that now you have a water bill that you have to pay. 
and that water has gone up because we have a shortage, say, in Sacramento that year. And what happens is, is water, and they've done this has happened in the past, where they will turn around and double the price of water, trying to get people to conserve water. So you may find all of a sudden you had something you thought was a positive cash flow is now turned into a negative cash flow because you have some expense you didn't know about or something new happened. Okay. Okay, anyway, cash flow is either positive or negative is the difference between income generated from a property and the expenses associated with it, including taxes, mortgage insurance, and operating expenses. It says many investors purchase property with the objective of providing an annuity. An annuity means it's like you put your money in it and it provides a certain amount of, you will, an annuity would provide like a guaranteed income. For example, when you get ready to retire from the state, the county, the city, some, some organization. In reality, what you do and may not realize it is you take that big bunch of money that you put away in your retirement plan and you purchase an annuity. And an annuity is where, for example, an annuity can be bought from like an insurance company. And the concept is, is that you put this money in and the insurance company will pay you, for example, a certain amount of income for the rest of your life. Okay, no matter how long you live, you could live to be 300, you'll still get the same amount of income. But if you die, maybe your spouse who's left will only get half your income. Okay, that would be an annuity. Okay, uh, for themselves, how, uh, how much this monthly income, uh, cash income will be is dependent upon many variables, the most important of which are the size of the investment and the amount of the leverage. Leverage, by the way, is how much money you put down on the property to control it. So in other words, it has to do like, for example, if I put 10% down you know, on a $100,000 property, my leverage would be 10%. Okay, so I'm controlling a $100,000 property with only $10,000 down. Okay, and that works out really well. If, if I put $10,000 down and property is just skyrocketing in price, you know, like there's been times that maybe you could have bought a $100,000 property this year, put $10,000 down, and next year it's worth $150,000 or $200,000. I've seen that happen. And, you know, you think about it, you go, my goodness, I made $100,000 based on the fact that I only put $10,000 down. That's, that's a really good rate of return. We've had that happen in the last uh, maybe last two or three years where people have bought, and next year the property's worth a lot more money than what they paid for it. Okay. Um, so anyway, it goes on from their leverage debt. For example, a well-managed apartment house containing, say, 30 units will provide an investor with a very high monthly income, uh, cash income while a smaller parcel property encumbered, meaning that it has loans against it, with a large trustee will have little, if any, cash flow. Proper, uh, properly structured, the property could well provide an investor with an independent or supplemental source of retirement funds. So you can get an income flow from the rental property, from the investment. The only thing, and I'm not sure when we're going to get to it, is remember, though, one thing is that real estate, unlike any other kind of investment that you would have your money in, takes an awful lot of management on your part. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> if I go down tomorrow or I pick up the phone and I call a stockbroker and say, excuse me, I would like you to take, uh, I want to buy you know, $100,000 in shares of IBM or Microsoft stock or whatever it is or a bond or a mutual fund, I buy that and I, I put my money down and then all I do is sit there and wait for the money to roll in. I have really no management that I have to do. I don't have to call IBM up and say, listen, uh, the check's late. 
I don't have to call IBM up and say, oh, by the way, you're not kind of taking care of your building too well. You know, I mean, the money just comes in. There's no management that I have to provide for that. Real estate, on the other hand, if you're an investor, takes a lot of management on your part. You know, either in the fact of you're directly managing and collecting the rents to maybe where you're actually making the repairs to where maybe you're finding some kind of a management company that takes care of that or hiring or selecting contractors to do the work. So real estate takes management. In other words, you actively have to participate in real estate or hire somebody to actively participate in it in order to make money out of it. If you don't manage it, it's going to fall apart. If you don't take care of the renters, you're going to find out very quickly your vacancy factors go up and you're going to lose money. Or if you have an, a, a shopping center and you don't take care of the tenants in there and their needs and desires, you know, when they start complaining about the parking lot is not clean you, and you're not doing anything about it, they're going to start moving out on you. So you, you have a lot of management that you have to do with rental property, any kind of investment property. Second reason why you would maybe want to buy something is you're going to have some kind of an interim use. An interim use means that you're going to buy it now with the idea in mind that down the road you may convert it into another use. As an example, we know that in the Sacramento area, if we go out any of the highways, if we go south on Highway 5, if we go south on Highway 99, if we go west on Highway 80, east on Highway 80, no matter which direction we go out of Sacramento, all we have to do is drive for a little bit of a while and we see that there are people that are building houses. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. That property that they're building houses on now, in a lot of cases, used to be ranch or farm property. In other words, they grew crops on there, they had cattle on there, they did something. So you could very well buy the property for what's considered to be an interim use. An interim use would be, you know, hey, I'm going to buy this small farm. It's 100 acres. You know, I'm going to make enough money growing some hay or growing some vegetables or, or whatever to hold on to it. That's my only intent. Operate this thing, generate hopefully enough income, have a place to live and hold on to it because I believe in the next 10 or 15 years that property is going to be needed for some other use such as houses, office buildings, shopping centers, which means now the value is going to go up because it's worth more as a residential area than it is an agricultural area to raise cows on. Okay, so I could do it for that. You'll also see other kinds of properties that people will use as interim uses. In fact, many warehouses, those places where we store the stuff that we don't want in our garage, you know, or we're getting ready to move, those things actually started out because they're very inexpensive to build, you know, when you really think about it. You know, they're just a pad of concrete, a structure metal structure and a light in there. There's not a lot to them. It's not like putting in a house or an apartment building, you know, where you have a lot of plumbing and electrical and all that other stuff. So a lot of people, the thought was, listen, let me build the mini warehouse area here. What I'll do is people will, people that are living at home or companies that have stuff that they don't have room for will store their stuff in my warehouse and I will hold, that will be a good way for me to hold on to the land for a period of time and then hopefully when the land can be used for something else such as office buildings, shopping centers or, or apartment houses, what I'll do is very easily I'll tear those mini warehouses down and build this other type of thing. So it's a way for me to hold the land. In downtown Sacramento you may find out that people will have like vacant land that they'll have and they'll say you know what are you going to do with that so you may turn around and say you know I, I believe in the next 10 years people are going to build something on it 
But in the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm going to rent out those spaces to those office people across the street, you know, or the comp people that owns the office space for cars. So people have a place to rent, you know, park their car. And I'll charge them a certain fee to rent that space for their patients or their clients or whatever. Parking, I'll put a sign up and say, you know, Dr. Jones's patients only or your car will be towed away. And guess what? Dr. Jones is going to pay me a fee you know, for his patients to use that lot. And I'll do that for the next 5, 10, 15 years. And then guess what? Whenever they get ready to build on there, I just take the sign down. And, you know, in the meantime, it's generated some income for me. So you kind of have to look at a lot of different opportunities like that, that why people will hold on to property. Okay? So that's interim use. Okay? And then it says stability. It says many types of real estate, particularly commercial and industrial properties, enjoy long-term leases with top corporations. That's true. Uh, you also see times when people will have, you know, you'll have somebody that will lease from you for a long period of time. They take care of everything. But the only thing you have to be on guard for is that all of a sudden they'll move out. You know, now I don't know what the lease arrangements are, but right now in Sacramento, we have the Ralph supermarket stores that have all closed. If you drive around those areas, the stores are shuttered. Now, I'm sure that probably Ralph's, that company, has uh, something in their lease that says, oh, by the way, they have to continue to make some kind of payments. But let's say, for example, they didn't. Now, all of a sudden, you have this space that's sitting there, this huge space that nobody can use, you know, until you find a tenant to replace it. So it's good when things are going on, when they're making payments, and you're sitting there on your boat in Mexico, you know, f your fishing boat, catching fish, and hey, the checks just show up in the bank every month. But if all of a sudden that tenant moves out, you can end up where you're, you're saddled with a big financial responsibility. So you want to, that's again, part of the management thing that you want to keep in mind. Um, Okay, some of the other things that they'll uh, talk about um, is uh, refinancing. One of the things that people can do uh, if they own property to get money out of it is to refinance it. Uh, you don't have to sell it. So in other words, if you had, and we do this a lot, you know, it can start out where you just have a single-family rental house and you've owned for a bunch of years and you decide that you want to buy more real estate. You may decide, hey, instead of me turning around and selling that, what I may do is just turn around and borrow the money. Borrow some money against it and then go out and buy some more property. So if that property is producing enough positive cash flow, you can maybe turn around and refinance it, get enough money to pay the loan on that, and then use that money to buy either another property or use it for some other specific use. The only thing you want to keep in mind, though, is that when you borrow money against real estate, don't let anybody kid you. It costs money to borrow money against real estate. It's not free. You know, if you get ready to borrow money against real estate, you're going to have escrow fees, title fees. You're going to have appraisal fees. You're going to have a lot of costs associated with it. That's why I always say to anybody when they say, well, oh, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'll just refinance my house and borrow some money to buy a brand new car. All I say to them is what you need to do is figure out what those costs are. And you may find out it's going to cost you four, five, six thousand $6,000 to refinance that property. Okay, it's not, that's not, it's not cheap, okay, in some cases. And if, you're, if your intention is to use the money to buy a car, I may very well want to run the numbers of buying the car by using a loan that maybe the, the company that sells it, like General Motors or Ford or somebody like that, is going to provide me. Maybe they have an incentive that says, hey, we'll give you a really rate, low rate loan. 
you know, if you have good credit. And I may very well go for that rather than refinancing the house because when I do, when I pencil those costs out, I may find out it's cheaper to use, you know, even so it's not tax deductible, it's cheaper to go ahead and use the loan from, from the car company than it is to refinance the house. So keep that in mind. Um, okay. Okay, so one of the things they say finally as far as owning the property that people can look at is, is that there are other benefits to the investor include pride of ownership. You know, in other words, some people just like to say, drive you down past the apartment building and say, that's mine. And everybody goes, wow, I can't believe that. Or their shopping center. You know, people have a pride of ownership. They want people to know, hey, I own this building. This is my office building, my shopping center, my apartment house. Uh, they have security, status, again, achievement. Uh, they build their estate and an opportunity to improve profits. That could be another one that would be part of the amenities, meaning that when you buy something, real estate, unlike, you know, when you, that's, one, that's one disadvantage to investing in the stock market or the bond market or the mutual fund market. If you buy something, you know, the only way that you can most likely make money is that the value of that stock or bond goes up. You know, there are other ways, but mainly it's because it goes up. So you buy Microsoft when it's cheap, and now if something happens and it goes up. You bought Martha Stewart stock when it was down low while she was in jail. When she got out of jail, Martha Stewart stock went up. Okay, so you made money on it, okay? But real estate has a unique thing where you can go in there and go, you know what, that building, we could do some things on that building to turn it around. We could do some things to fix it. You know, when you look at it, you may say, you know what, uh, if I buy this, one of the things that I've noticed is that all the furniture in it is old. You know, maybe I could make some more money by replacing the furniture and be able to make the rents go up higher. Or maybe it's a fact of just doing something cosmetically like painting or changing out the old wallpaper or cleaning the pool or whatever. There's some kind of management thing I can do, and by doing that, I, I can improve the profitability of the place and then turn around and sell it or, or hold on to it. Now, some of the challenges of real estate investing, one of the things that they say, it's a large capital outlay. You know, typically in investment property, it usually takes quite a bit of money as a down payment. Uh, you may find occasionally, not occasionally, if you look really hard, you may find out that there's somebody that needs to sell, okay, and that, you, you know, you need a smaller down payment. But usually, in most cases, if you want to get something that's going to have a positive cash flow and that you don't have to do a lot of work on, you're going to have to put a lot of money down. Okay, so that's one thing. That's the reason why a lot of times people, when they get bought, when you get, if you're going to be involved in this business, that's why you may find out that it's not one individual that buys the place. You may find out that it's two doctors or three doctors or four doctors or three accountants or two attorneys that go together to buy this place. They form a partnership to buy it or own it. Or you may find out that it's uh, like a real estate investment trust that buys it. It takes a lot of money sometimes. And so you'll find out you may be dealing with partnerships where they have, you know, two, three, four people who are going together to buy this. Okay, so it's a different way. It's not like a single-family homeowner, okay? Um, the next thing that's – so in other words, if you want to look at the downside, you have to put a lot of money down. Second thing is, is you have what we call lack of liquidity. Liquidity essentially means that – you know, liquid, if you remember from real estate principles and those other things, means liquid means how quickly can I turn whatever it is that I have into cash. So cash being the most liquid, a check, you know, you write a check, you go to the bank, you give it to the bank, the bank cashes it and gives you the cash for it. That's liquid. Stocks and bonds, you want to sell a stock or a bond, you call up, you call a broker and say, sell. They say, fine, done. 
That's because that, that stock they call whatever the stock exchange is, is gazillions of people looking to buy, and they'll find somebody. Maybe not for the price you want, but they can sell it. Okay, so that's very liquid. Real estate, on the other hand, and specifically investment property, you may find out that it takes quite a while to turn around and sell that. You know, the people that are buying that apartment complex or buying that shopping center or that office building may not even be here in Sacramento. You may have to advertise it widely throughout, you know, throughout the country in order to find somebody that's really interested in buying that. It's not like a home. So it can take a while to take and sell that. Or it can take a while to get your money back out of it. Um, you also need here, you also need something called pro professional property management. And the more complicated the property is, the more professional management you need. So, for example, if you take a look at some of the shopping centers that are in the Sacramento area, if you walk through the shopping centers, somewhere in that shopping center, somewhere, you'll see a sign that says management's office, manager's office. That manager that's on site, if you sit down and talk to them, has a lot of responsibilities. You know, you need to have a full-time manager or even a full-time staff because that manager is doing things like hiring people to take care of security, you know, to make sure that people, when they come to the center, feel safe and secure. Uh, maybe to catch people that are stealing stuff from the store. Uh, you may find out that they have to hire additional security for the parking lot, especially like during Christmas. We always see that going on all the time where they're coming up with some new scheme to catch people that are breaking into cars and taking stuff. You'll find out that there may be not just one janitor, but a staff of janitorial people that are doing things like cleaning the place up every night. Uh, you may find out they have an on-site, like hotels, motels, those places have on-site maintenance people because there's stuff breaking all the time. The heater system quits, the air conditioning doesn't work, somebody gets locked out of the store, on and on. So you're going to find out that a lot of real estate, depending upon its size, has a tremendous amount of management that has to be on-site. Now, if we go back to a single-family home and we own the home ourselves, we find out that, hey, you know what, we may be the landlord, we may be the plumber, the electrician, the roofer, we may do all of those things. But that only works to a certain size of a building. Once you get past a certain size, maybe a duplex or a fourplex, you start talking about an apartment house, you know, where there's a lot of things that are going on. You know, people are calling up and saying the garbage disposal doesn't work in this unit, the dishwasher doesn't work in that unit, you know you may find out that you have to have somebody there to correct those things. That's why in some of the smaller apartment complexes, you will see where they will hire both the husband and the wife. And the concept is, is that they're both together, they're on site all the time, usually compensated via a free apartment or a salary of some kind. You may find out that, uh, that the wife or the husband, depending upon, is responsible for making sure the landlord wants those units filled all the time. So they're running a consistent list all the time with people stopping and taking a look at units. So the, the concept is one of their primary jobs is to make sure nothing ever sits vacant, okay, that they always have it rented out. So they're always talking to tenants and trying to find out if you're going to move out, do we have somebody else moving in? They may be working on collecting rents. Like if somebody doesn't pay their rent on time, they're going over and knocking on the door and say, excuse me, I didn't get your check this month. Where is it? Uh, you may find out that if it's uh, like a smaller complex that they may, maybe the husband is the one that does all the maintenance. And he, he may find out that that can be pretty close to a full-time job plus, you know, sprinkler systems, heating systems, air conditioning systems, on-clogging garbage disposals, 
It just goes on and on and on with the amount of stuff that you have to do. So if you're the owner of that, you have a choice. Either you're the one that's going to be the maintenance person going over there fixing it all the time, or you're going to have to hire somebody to do it. You know, one or the other. When people move out of apartments, usually you have to have them painted. You know, I mean, you know, people have lived there for a while. You have to go and paint them. You have to manage that activity, all that. So there's a lot of management, a lot of intense management that has to take place. Same thing with the shopping center. I mean, go out to a shopping center, you'll see somebody out there at 4 o'clock in the morning cleaning the parking lot, sweeping the parking lot. You know, I mean, there's a lot, just a lot of man intensive management work that has to be done when you own it. Uh, and professional management. Okay, and then the last thing, uh, not the last thing, but one of the things that they say here is potentially, possibly, there might be a possibility that you may have what we call unfavorable financing. Okay, so let's read a little bit about that. It says, the amount and the terms of the current financing may not meet the goals and the objectives of your current investor. For example, if short-term loans with high interest rates are the only loans currently available, your investor's cash flow potentially will be greatly diminished. Okay. Additional restrictive and unappealing financing terms uh, include acceleration clauses, lock-in provisions, prepayment penalties, and more. So in other words, just the the financing that either is currently on the building right now, okay, that maybe could even be assumed by somebody, or the, uh, the possibility of getting new financing. There could be times in which the lend, you know, lenders will say, hey, you know what, no problem. I'll help you buy that. I'll finance it. You may find other times when the money is very tight. And if the money is tight and the interest rates are high, you go to borrow that money and you're going to find out you have a lack of cash flow because all your money is going out in this interest. Okay, and higher interest rates. So you want to kind of keep that in mind, too. Um, this is one thing, and I think I'm going to kind of end on this. Yeah, we'll pick up here the next time. But the thing about personal at uh, attachment affecting property, that's one thing that you do not want to have yourself do when you own any kind of an investment. <laughs> It's very, very difficult, and we do this with stocks and bonds and mutual funds and apartment houses and houses, but you don't want to have a personal attachment to it. You know, you want to make a decision and be able to say, I cannot manage this anymore. I need to get rid of it, or this is not the right investment for me, or maybe I should not buy this. This is not a good decision. You know, I'm 56 years old. I'm not going to go out there with a hammer and a screwdriver and a paintbrush and fix it. It needs a lot of work, Okay. So anyway, we'll pick up there the next time we come back on uh, the personal attachment with that. Thank you very much for co coming, and we'll see you back here for show 23 again. Thanks a lot. And